I came across a story that I think uh, is, is really interesting and, and, and kind of caught my interest at the very least. And it took place during the American Revolution. There was this pastor in a town in Pennsylvania named Peter Miller. And what was interesting about Peter Miller is he had a special relationship with a man that uh, many of us know, and that was General George Washington, who would then eventually be our first president of the United States. So in this relationship with each other, they, they got to know each other more. But what was interesting about Peter Miller's life was not necessarily his friendship with George Washington, was, uh, his friendship with George Washington, but rather what was interesting about his life was that he had a foe. There was a particular gentleman that oftentimes would give him grief, and that gentleman was Michael Whitman. And what was interesting about Michael Whitman was that he could not stand Peter Miller. And specifically, he could not stand Peter Miller because of his Christian faith. But as fate would have it, time would go on and Whitman would get arrested. And not arrested for any small act, but arrested for something that was considered a very big deal and would be considered a very big deal even till today. And he was arrested for treason, for specifically serving as a British spy during the American Revolution. And as you can imagine, this act of treason meant that Whitman would be sentenced to death. So when Peter Miller heard this news that Whitman was going to be sentenced to death, he immediately started off on a journey where he had to travel 70 miles by foot, So, as it said. And he traveled those 70 miles in order to meet up with his dear friend, George Washington, the only man that he knew at that time who could make a difference in this person's life. And when he came to George Washington, he immediately began pleading for Whitman's life. Rather interesting, if you ask me, right, that this man would take the time to travel this way in order to redeem this person redeem this person who oftentimes acted as a foe to Miller. And what was interesting was that Washington patiently listened to Miller, but he decided not to grant him a pardon. And he tells Miller, I'm sorry, but I can't grant your friend a pardon. And immediately, Miller corrects George, and he says, My friend? He's not my friend. Why, he is my bitterest enemy. He has persecuted me for years. He has beaten me and spit in my face, knowing full well that I would not strike back. Michael Whitman is no friend of mine. George, taken back by this reply, said, Tell me. Why is it that you would ask the pardon of your worst enemy? And Miller replied, I ask it because Jesus did as much for me. Well, surprisingly, George, would, George Washington would grant a pardon to Whitman. 
And it's said that Whitman and Miller after that had to journey home back to their town in Pennsylvania together. And on that journey, Miller and Whitman turned from enemies to friends. I like this story because it highlights a few different points. You see, one of the most confusing things that if you were to ask an expert in sociology would be the concept of friendship. In fact, much ink has been spilled when asking the question, what is a friend? You could peruse your local library trying to find a book on friendship, and you'd likely find volumes and volumes filled with pages and pages of what a friend is. And oftentimes, as you read these books or look at these articles on friendship, what you end up finding out is people tend to define friendship on more, more so under the terms of what it is not, versus what it is. Because in many ways, if we look at this story, at least between Whitman and Miller, we would say that Miller was a friend in some ways to Whitman, would we not? Even though in their hearts, they saw each other as enemies. And many of you have probably had circumstances and situations where you thought somebody was a friend to you, but you soon realize in your moment of need or your values in life or maybe through a circumstance where you expect a friend to act in a certain way and then what happens? This is especially hard in marriage relationships when we in some ways hope that our spouse is to be our closest friend. But we've all faced a time in our lives where friendship has failed us. Today I want to take some time to look at these two verses in James chapter 15, specifically verses 19 and 20, and I encourage you that if you brought your Bibles to turn there today, we will have it on the screen, but this is so good that it's worth underlining, I believe. But I want to take some time to explore this idea of friendship, and really friendship within the Christian community, because as we read these verses, you'll know Notice that there really is no mention here of the word friendship, but as I studied this this week, I could not help but feel like in some ways this defines, uh, at least in, in part, what some friendship should look like within Christian community, or at least the care that we're supposed to have for one another. And I want to hopefully encourage our church and challenge us, especially within this 2022, to look at these verses and allow them to be a roadmap for how we treat one another within this church, because I think it is so important for the church of Jesus Christ to be able to get this right, especially the church in America, because you see, Americans, and I'm speaking to myself here, Americans, we as Americans oftentimes 
fall into this trap of individualism. If you look at other cultures throughout the world, one of the things that you'll notice is that certain cultures are more community-driven. And in America, we have a very individualistic type of mindset where we constantly think about ourselves, which is why in some ways it's so hard at times to even offer aid to other people because usually we want to just handle it ourselves. And we always feel so awkward, right, when people ask us for help and we kind of just say, I'm good. And don't get me wrong, there could be times where we truly are good, but you get what I'm saying here? We typically live in our own little silos. And I think James here is encouraging us to look past those silos and to look and live in Christian community for the sake of love for one another. So let me not bait this out anymore and let's go ahead and look at what Scripture has to say. James 5.19 My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, Someone should bring that person back. Did you see that? My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back. You see, this is really, really odd. And let me explain why this is odd. Because if you've read your Bible before, if you've read at least the New Testament of Scriptures and looked at what is called the epistles, which is a fancy word to just kind of say letters, most of those letters are written to an individual who is at a church or a church all together. And it's always written with community in mind. But specifically, if you look at maybe the letters of Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, letters that exist, if you look at his sign-off from all the letters, he usually gives what's called a benediction, a word of encouragement, and a final kind of farewell to those that are reading and hearing his letters to various people and churches. But James kind of decides to stand apart here, and he does something completely different. But he uses the last words in his letters to continue to encourage the church and challenge the church with Christian living. He doesn't do your typical sign-off. And in some ways, because this is so different, we should pay close attention to it. And James here uses this Greek word, which I've mentioned before, adelphos. And this Greek word of adelphos, which honestly isn't really that special, but James uses it so much that I think it's worth at least kind of mentioning, is that James uses this Greek word, which means brothers and sisters, but so much more. It means my kinsmen. James is, is linking himself up as closely as he can with those that will be reading his letter in order to realize that he has love behind what he's saying, that he's viewing these people as closely as he can as kinsmen. And it's in that spirit that he wants to communicate these words. But what is he really saying here? He's trying to highlight the kind of person 
that wanders from the truth. That wanders from the truth. But what truth is James really talking about? You see, what James has in mind isn't just any simple truth out there as far as a random fact. The truth that James is talking about is the gospel. The gospel truth. You know, I remember years ago when I was sitting on a church leadership team, we were meeting together for weekly Bible studies and we would encourage each other. And it usually it was some version of maybe we would listen to a message from North Point Church. We'd listen to an Andy Stanley message. Or maybe we would read through a book of the Bible together. Or we would read through maybe just a, a, a popular book of that time. And it was really a great, enriching time. And I remember always looking around the room and not really feeling like I fit in, not because I wasn't welcome, but because there were so many people there that were just so gifted and, 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 if I could use this word, anointed in what God was using them with. And I was just in college, just trying to get my bearings with all this going, and I remember on one particular week, we were meeting all together, and the pastor who just had this incredible way of, of, of challenging us asked a very simple question. What is the gospel? Now, what was interesting was when he asked that question and went around the room, most people began to stumble in their response. And while I don't want to put anybody on the spot here, because it's easy when you're on the spot to just get forget, be forgetful of what you want to say, the truth remains that if I were to ask some of us what the gospel is, we would probably struggle as well. And there's a sense of tragedy in that because ultimately I would hope that most of us are here and most of us who call and label our, and identify ourselves as Christians would very easily be able to say what the gospel is. Now, the gospel itself means the good news. So if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? What is the good news? I would hope that each and every single one of us could think about Jesus. Jesus coming into this world, living a life that we could not live, dying a death that we deserved, and being able through that act to afford each of us the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, that through His resurrection, we too are resurrected. There's many verses that I think highlight well what the gospel is, but one of my favorites that I know many of you have memorized or are fond of 
of course, comes out of John 3.16. But what I love here is not just 3.16, but 17 as well. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. That's the gospel. At least, that's the gospel written in John 3, 16 and 17. And church, I have an important message for you today to remind you of. You carry the truth. You carry with you the knowledge of the good news of the gospel. Do you live that way? Do you live as if you truly have the antidote to the infection of sin? Do you truly live as if you have the hope that people are ultimately hungry and searching for? Do you live like you have the answers to bring back people from death to life, because the way Scripture lays it out is that is the very power of the gospel. That is the good news, that you're able to do all of those things for others. But so often, we forget just how great that good news is. Jesus describing how great that good news is in the parable of the treasure, the buried treasure, reminds us how this news is, is like a treasure that we know is on a plot of land that realizing that treasure is there, we sell everything everything that we have in order to buy that land because what is buried in that land is so much greater than anything earthly that we have. It's like what we have, if you scrape it all together, is just a few thousand dollars, but yet what's waiting on that land is trillions upon trillions of dollars. So, of course, we would sell everything we have in order to purchase that land. But yet, that comparison ultimately sometimes fails to truly grasp us in a way that we view the gospel that way. And look, I've failed at this too. But I believe what James is trying to communicate here is he's trying to communicate a reminder to us that we as people are prone to wander. You know, one of the things that I love about us continuing in our Acts method of prayer each week, or even us having Sunday service each week, is, is the fact that since we as individuals are prone to wander, we're, we're so easy to forget what God has done in our lives. It's so easy to forget what God has saved us from. 
This is why I always encourage you guys to, to, to write down some of your stories in journals in order to reflect back, especially during the New Year season, on how God has moved in your life. Because I tell you, because we are, are, are so often like sheep, we easily go astray and we easily forget God's influence in our lives. We need to take the time as individuals that if we carry with us a story of transformation, that we think back to exactly what God has transformed us from. You know, believe it or not, before I became a Christian, I was a very quick-tempered, angry person. I mean, I lived with a short fuse where it was so easy for me to just get upset at something, at small things, and to allow that to just cloud my life. And I believe that through the gospel message, God totally redeemed me of that. And there are certain things that might be a journey of redemption, but that was one of those things that just felt like it was a snap of the fingers, and I went from being an angry person to being a person of peace. And look, I'm still, there's, it's not like I've fully arrived at that, but I see that transition in my life. But here in verse 19, James is reminding us that some of us will wander from the truth. And I have a question to ask you. Do you care about that person that wanders? Do you care about that person that wanders? Because here's the thing. If we're honest with ourselves, there has probably been a moment in our own lives where we have wandered. There's probably been a moment where we have failed to allow God to have full supremacy over our lives, or where we have forgotten in some ways God's goodness in our lives, and, and maybe it's because we're in the midst of a circumstance that shakes us and rocks us and causes us to question the Lord, or maybe it's because we allow our lives to get so busy that we don't allow prayer and coming to church and reading scriptures and being committed to Christian fellowship that for whatever reason the Lord loses priority in our lives and because of that we wander. But how do you treat people who wander? And what's difficult here is I think many of us know a story in our lives when maybe somebody in the church has witnessed somebody wandering, and instead of immediately being devoted to that person in prayer, instead of trying to be a friend to that person, and trying to redeem that person, and as verse 19 reminds us, to bring that person back, what it, in, instead happens? Criticism. Judgmental attitudes. You start to say instead, well, I knew that was going to happen. 
Well, you, do you see the kind of company that they keep? They've always been like that, even since they were little. Their mom was like that. And we knew that they were going to be that way. You know, I never really truly believed that when they said yes to Jesus that it really meant something. They're not part of God's elect. (laughs) And instead of having a heart dedicated to seeing this person come back to the truth, we oftentimes just let people walk away. One of the reasons why I had Preston earlier on in the service read that portion of Scripture from Matthew 18 is because it very well explains the heart of God. And Jesus really uses this expression of us as sheep repeatedly But the heart of God is ultimately this, and I'll just read a a, a parallel version from Matthew 12, where he says that if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? And as as, as Preston was talking earlier, he read that portion that says, you would leave the 99 to save the one. That's the heart of God. And that leads me to my main point for today. And that is, is that God always desires restoration. You see, the ultimate gospel truth is a truth of restoration. The gospel story is a story of restoration. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, from the moment humanity falls in Genesis chapter 3, God works out a plan of restoration. And all the books of the Old Testament are ultimately leading to the person of Jesus. And all of that is developing into Jesus coming to bring us restoration. So church, what does that mean for us? That if God is a God of restoration, and we are His people, then who should we be? We should also be people of restoration. Amen? But again, let me ask you, when people come into contact with you, do they receive restoration or do they receive destruction? Because one of the things that we've learned from this book of James is that we have the power to bring life, but we also have the power to bring death, destruction, to curse people with our words and with our actions. And the hard message that we need to hear today, that if we truly are to be friends with one another, if we truly are to be committed to this fellowship with one another, then we need to be committed to each other in a godly friendship that desires restoration. Are you following me? 
Verse 20 says this, it says, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You see, what's interesting about how James phrases this is he doesn't really direct the, uh, he doesn't really give a, a concrete direction on who the object of these blessings go to. And ultimately, that doesn't fully matter because the reality is is that we need to be committed to restoration and that ultimately, if we do that, then we get to see the privilege of seeing a person who might have been erroring, who might have been wandering off and going into a different direction and see that person saved and ultimately see the miraculous work of God of covering over a multitude of sins. This harks back all the way to Proverbs, where it reminds us of how God can cover a multitude of sins and really shows that God is a God of restoration. Notice that this scripture doesn't say that if you bring them back, you get the opportunity to belittle them. That if you bring them back, you get the opportunity to put them in a corner with a dunce hat. But rather, if you bring them back, you get the opportunity to see another miracle happen, of seeing another person come into salvation you so it's it's so easy in these two verses to get lost on what i would call theological insignificance and don't get me wrong theology is very important roger would beat me up if i said anything wrong but we can get so lost in the debate of, well, does this mean an individual is, you know, once saved, always saved, or can, if they can wander away, does that mean they lose their salvation? And I, look, that debate's important. But the more important thing is that we care to restore. Because ultimately, many of us, are pro- we're all prone to wander. And church, I believe God is calling this church to have eyes wide open to be able to see the people in this community, both inside and outside of the church, and live with that heart of restoration. Because God always desires restoration. So if you see your brother or sister wandering off, then have the love for them, be a true friend to them, and get invested in their lives. Not in a way where you're just trying to point out every problem, because what does Jesus say about that? You could point out a speck of dirt in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own, right? But rather to do it with a heart of friendship, a heart of love, where you desire that person's well-being. What would our churches look like if every single time somebody wandered away, we would care in the same way that if someone was lost out to sea, we would hope for the Coast Guard to form a party in order to save that individual? What would our churches look like if we strategized in that kind of way, where we were committed to loving people the minute and moment they wandered. I think it would look like a different place than sometimes what we see today. But that is ultimately the place that God is calling us to. 
And look, we're going to fail in our journey to get there, but we need to be committed to one another in restoration. You know, our church is called Peace Mennonite Community Church, right? And there's two important words that come up in the name of our church, peace and community. Those words are meant to be descriptors of who we are, that we are people of peace. Well, part of being a person of peace is being a restorative person, to bring wholeness to somebody's life in community. That means that we are people that are committed to the ones that are around us. Are you committed in that way? God is calling us to be invested in each other's lives. And James uses his last and final words to remind us of that. Our faith is a faith of restoration. Amen? And we are called to bring that restoration to others. Let's pray.